From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Welcome to The Podvocate. I'm your host, Matt Doran, and this episode centers on an upcoming Supreme Court case, BL, the Mahanoy Area School District. This is a fascinating case that seeks to draw the line of where a student's free speech rights end and a school's authority to discipline student speech begins. This episode will be discussed from the perspective of three guests, each talking about a different aspect of the case and its practical implications. But before we get to our expert guests, allow me to provide some factual background. In the spring of 2017, BL, a high school freshman in Pennsylvania and member of the junior varsity cheerleading team, tried out for varsity. Part of being on the cheerleading team required adhering to a code of conduct, and one of the rules was, there will be no toleration of any negative information regarding cheerleading, cheerleaders, or coaches placed on the internet, end quote. BL signed a document acknowledging she understood the rules and would abide by them. The Saturday after tryouts, she learned she did not make the varsity team and would spend another year on the junior varsity cheerleading team. That same Saturday, dismayed, BL took to Snapchat to vent by taking a selfie. In this selfie, she was not wearing anything with school markings. There was nothing in the background indicating BL was on the cheerleading team or was a student at this particular school. Looking at the picture and its caption, there was no way to know BL was a student at her school nor that she was on the cheerleading team. In the selfie, she held up her middle fingers with the caption, F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything. BL sent this snap to 250 people. One of the recipients, a fellow cheerleader, took a screenshot of the snap and showed it to her mother, who happened to be one of the cheerleading coaches. Two days later, on Monday at school, more cheerleaders and non-cheerleading students approached the coaches, saying the photo was inappropriate. According to the coaches, students continued to come to them upset by the photo for the next few days. The coaches ultimately decided to discipline BL by suspending her from cheerleading for one year. The school said BL's act warranted punishment to, quote, avoid chaos and maintain a, quote, team-like environment. BL and her family did not believe this punishment was appropriate. She and her family initially sought relief from the school board, but the school board chose not to become involved. So, BL filed suit against the school in federal court, saying the school restricted her free speech rights. BL won at the district court, which held coaches cannot discipline students for off-campus, off-the-field speech if that speech is neither substantially disruptive nor bears the imprimatur of the school. Thus, according to the district court, because BL Snap failed that test, her words were constitutionally protected by the First Amendment. On appeal, the Third Circuit laid out a test to determine whether a school can discipline student speech. Did the student speech occur in a context owned, controlled, or sponsored by the school? The Third Circuit appellate court held BL snap did not occur in any of those contexts, so the school could not discipline the speech and the snap was protected free speech. The school district submitted a writ for certiorari, which the Supreme Court granted. Oral argument will take place on April 28th, the audio recording of which will become available on April 30th. If you like this episode, go to supremecourt.gov on April 30th to listen to those recorded oral arguments. Now, before we welcome our first guest, I must share that this is an issue that strikes close to home. Before coming to law school, among other careers, I was a middle and high school English teacher, and I was a high school rowing coach. 
Back when I was in high school and a college student, I was a rower, so I know what it's like to participate in scholastic sports and be part of a team. I was a senior in college when Facebook came out, so I did not grow up with social media. I got the internet when I was 17. This is a topic that, from a student's perspective, is unfamiliar to me, and from an athlete, teacher, and coach's perspective, is not necessarily familiar, but certainly understandable. Part of me thinks a school or coach has no business telling students or athletes what they can and can't do in the, on their own time. Another part of me sees how BL Snap could undermine team morale and the coach's authority. I'm really torn on this issue, and, and I'm recording this after having spoken to all of our guests. After having discussed this case with experts addressing it from multiple sides, I'm still torn over how to deal with this tentacular issue. Whether you've got skin in this game because you're going into education law like many Loyola students do, or you're a parent, or plan to be a parent, or a storm supporter of First Amendment free speech rights, this case affects us all. Join me in exploring the many sides to this dynamic case. Our first guest on this case is Professor Kathleen Herzman. Professor Herzman teaches legal issues in student discipline here at Loyola and has dedicated her legal career to education law. She has counseled and represented school districts on a variety of subjects, and we're eager to have her foreground this case for us. Professor Herzman, welcome to The Podvocate. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So our listeners have an understanding of the facts of this case, uh, which I read to them briefly already. Can you please tell us what's the issue in Mahanoy and versus BL? What is the Supreme Court really looking at? Well, the issue is as stated by the Supreme or stated in the request of the Supreme Court is very clear. And I'll, I'll just read it to you. It's whether Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District, which holds that public school officials may regulate speech that would materially and substantially disrupt the work and discipline of the school, applies to student speech that occurs off campus. And that's the issue. Can you tell us, I mean, that, that's fairly succinct. Uh, but can you give us a bit of a flavor, uh, particularly in given how uh, much of your career has been spent in this field? What is the practical ramification of that? What would that look like? You know, or what, what does that issue look and feel like to, let's say, a school principal? As a school attorney, I would get phone calls all the time from school administrators, principals, asking, can we do something about this student's expression, their speech, something they said? And the question is, can we discipline them for that speech? And then when that question comes up, what comes to us next is, is the student's speech protected? Meaning uh, they can assert a First Amendment right of free speech, which would protect them from discipline that might otherwise flow. And we applied an analysis that's been in place for a long time on that question, dealing with speech that actually takes place at school. Because we didn't always have uh, cyber communication, digital communications, speech that, that involved school students that teachers and administrators were concerned about was speech that took place at school. Something a student said at school, wrote uh, to someone else at school, uh, published at school. Back in the day when I first started representing school districts before we had uh, digital technology, kids used to create underground newspapers and they would bring them to school. So the question back then was, can we discipline a student for this expression that they have made at school? Now the question is, can we discipline students 
for speech that has taken place in cyberspace that didn't occur physically at school? Or can the student who made that expression claim that their speech is protected under the First Amendment? So that's, that's the question that uh, school administrators are grappling with right now. We know how to deal with the speech that takes place in school, but we don't know how, how far our authority goes to speech that takes place off campus. And in this instance, we're talking about cyber speech because that's how kids communicate these days. Sure. Of course, that makes total sense. Having worked in, in education myself, that's a real bind. So there are four presidential Supreme Court cases on this issue. Uh, the names of Tinker, Frazier, Morse, and Kuhlmeyer. Hope I'm saying that last one right. Uh, interestingly, both parties in this case argue that these precedents support their position, something that I found really interesting. Um, so obviously it's very reader dependent. Uh, to help our listeners understand the party's arguments, can you please briefly review the facts and holdings of those cases? Okay, Tinker first case was decided back in 1969, and uh, it involved a couple of families who had kids in high school and junior high school, and they got together uh, one Sunday night talking about how could they honor the dead. So many people think it's protesting the Vietnam War, but rather it was honoring the dead uh, in the Vietnam War, and not only the dead Americans, but also the dead Vietnamese. And so they came up with the idea, we'll wear black armbands to respect and honor the dead. Now, the school district got wind of this, and the school district created a school policy that said no armbands allowed in school. The kids went ahead and wore the black armbands. Mary Beth Tinker, her older brother John, and another student who was actually the first one, and the case was named after him until it went to the Supreme Court, and then they juxtaposed the names of the plaintiffs. So uh, he will not be remembered, but Mary Beth Tinker will. And they wore their black armbands to school, and the school enforced their policy and suspended the students, told them either remove your armbands or you'll be suspended. And they suspended the students and the students challenged their suspension as being in violation of their First Amendment rights of free speech. The Supreme Court, the case wended its way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supremes made a statement in that decision, which is echoed in every single free speech case, which essentially says that uh, students do not shed their rights of their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. So this was the first time that the Supreme Court had actually recognized constitutional rights, specifically free speech in a school setting. But the Supreme Court said there's limits to that. And schools can restrict or discipline speech that causes or is likely to cause material or substantial disruption in school. So you don't have to establish that it has in fact caused it, but if it's likely to cause that would be sufficient to give school authority to repress that speech or to discipline students for engaging in that speech. So that was the test that they articulated in the Tinker case, but they also talked a fair amount about speech that collides with the rights of others to be left alone or that interferes with others' rights may not be protected either. But that was not what the court focused on. The court focused on material and substantial disruption 
in the school setting. That the um, substantial interference with the rights of others, that's, um, that's essentially dicta from that uh, case. Well, it comes from other uh, other lower court cases that the court was referring to in discussing how to analyze this issue. And here's what the Tinker Court said. This is their language. Conduct by the student in class or out of it, which material dis- materially disrupts classwork or involves substantial disorder or invasion of the rights of others is not immunized by the constitutional guarantee of freedom of speech. There has been much focus on that second part or invasion of the rights of others. And in my view, that's a very important caveat that I think it becomes even more important when we talk about this issue of off-campus, on-campus speech, social media, cyber speech, where maybe we can't apply that test of material and substantial disruption in school, although I think we can, we can also look at, is that speech invading the rights of others? And I would go back to Tinker and say, that could be a basis for limiting the speech or for disciplining for that speech. Okay. Okay. Have have any subsequent cases, either at the Supreme Court level or at uh, within the circuits, have they dealt strictly with that uh, invasion of the rights of others and apply that? Not in that context. Instead, what were the justification schools have used for disciplining students when they engage in, and let's let's focus right now on off-campus speech because that is what's an in, in issue in the BL case. But the justification schools have used and which have, has been um, affirmed by courts is when that speech does interfere with the rights of others. So typically we think of like harassment cases or threats. And we have a number of circuit court level cases involving harassments and threats directed at other students where the discipline has been upheld in the face of a First Amendment assertion of a right of free speech. And so while the court is not actually referring back to Tinker and referring back to the second part of Tinker, which I think is very, very critical, but one might argue that it's part of dicta and it's not part of the holding, the underlying premise is really, really important. And that is what I believe is significant rather than trying to make an arbitrary distinction between whether or not speech takes place on campus or off campus. Are there any other Supreme Court cases that are particularly um, inf- uh, informative on this issue? Well, there, as you mentioned, there are three other cases involving students' free speech rights that the Supreme Court addressed. The Frazier case involved a student who gave a uh, campaign support speech for one of his fellow students for, for example, a student council position. And the speech was given in a crowded assembly where all of the students in the entire school, and it was a high school setting, were required to sit and listen to the speech. And the speech was filled with sexual innuendo. And in fact, this was back, Frazier was in 1980, I'm drawing a blank when Frazier came out. 
86 maybe. And uh, when we look at the actual language of the speech, it seems very, very tame. But we have to put ourselves back 30 years, 25 years, and at that time, it created a stir. It actually did create a stir. Uh, As I said, the speech was filled with sexual innuendo, and the kids, the boys, I just say the boys were jumping up and down and mimicking by gesture the sexual uh, actions that were insinuated in the speech. The girls, the young girls were sitting there bewildered, didn't understand what was going on. And in fact, it became the major topic of discussion in classes that followed that. So in my view, if we're going to reconcile Frazier, and by the way, Frazier, the one who gave the speech, was suspended. He, in fact, he was told he was going to be suspended if he gave the speech, and he went ahead and give it in, gave it anyway. He was suspended, and the suspension, uh, long story short, it went to court on a, on a TRO because he wanted to be able to give the graduation speech. He was slotted to give the graduation speech. He didn't care about the suspension. He wanted to give that graduation speech. And the district court said, no, your speech is protected and you can go ahead and give the graduation speech. The case went up to the Supreme Court and it ping ponged back and forth in favor of the student, in favor of the school, and ultimately the Supremes held in favor of the school. And what they analyzed it is it's not part of the pedagogical mission. And in my view, I don't even see how the speech would have First Amendment protection, but that's neither here nor there. I think there are a number of ways that the court could rule in favor of the school. And one was it did cause material and substantial disruption. So we didn't even need to get to create a new rule. We could apply the Tinker rule and that would be sufficient. But what the court said is the speech effectively undermined the school's educational mission and it took place right in school. And so therefore it was not protected speech. So that was Frazier. And then we have the bong hits for Jesus case which is Morse versus Frederick. And this involved, uh, this case was decided in the 90s and it involved uh, the Olympic torch going through Juneau, Alaska on a school day. The principal said, kids come on out and watch the torch come through town. And by the way, you can stand on either side of the street and uh, Frederick and his friends unfurled a banner, which quite large, uh, the picture is really, uh, <laughs> the picture speaks about a thousand words and it says bong hits for Jesus. And so the superintendent or the principal disciplined him, suspended him for it. And he challenged the suspension as violating his first amendment, uh, right of free speech. The court, it, this case went all the way up to the Supreme court and the, and the court went through in what my view, an unnecessarily complicated analysis only to come down with the conclusion essentially, and this is the only conclusion that makes much sense to me, and when I teach it to students, this is the conclusion I draw from it, is if your speech is advocating illegal conduct, in this instance, illegal drug use, it's not protected. But we know that that is classic First Amendment law. That has nothing to do with a school setting. But the Supremes focused on the fact that this was taking place in a school setting, and it was contrary to the school mission, which was uh, to, um, to discourage illegal drug use. But I think a simpler, simpler way to resolve the, the conclusion in that case is, 
is that the student was advocating illegal conduct on school grounds and that's not protected speech. Maybe the suspension was a little heavy handed, but I think that there, there isn't a First Amendment defense to the suspension. So that was the, the Morse case. Uh, the, another Supreme Court case that was also decided in the 80s is the Kuhlmeyer case. And this involved a newspaper that was part of the journalism class. There were two articles in the newspaper written by students, very short articles. One involved uh, student pregnancies at school. And even though the students weren't identified, there was enough information there that one could figure out who the students were. And also it seemed to support that the fact that being pregnant in school maybe isn't such a bad thing. School wasn't, uh, didn't, wasn't particularly enamored with that message. And the other article was an interview of a student talking about the effect of divorce and mentioned that her father wasn't around much and, and the father was actually identified in the article. And so there were sound pedagogical reasons at least the school was able to articulate sound pedagogical reasons for pulling those two articles from the paper. And the Supreme Court affirmed that as not violating those students' free speech rights. And what was important about that case, and which I think gives it limited application, is it was part and parcel of that classroom activity. This wasn't even an extracurricular activity. It was a journalism class. And so the school was able to exert more control over the curriculum, which would include the content of the paper. So I don't believe that we glean anything from that case that's going to be helpful to us in addressing the question that was raised in BL, namely, is students uh, off campus speech protected on, from protected under the First Amendment, uh, from protected from discipline by the school district? Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I think that really helps give our listeners a sense of what the parties have to work with in terms of their arguments that they're going to be able to bring forward to the court. So now that we have this understanding of how the issue has been discussed by the court previously, or at least to the extent that it has, you know, I'm kind of struggling to see how the facts of BL are even an issue. Didn't the Morse court say that, you know, Tinker doesn't apply to off-campus speech? If we concede that this did occur off-campus, then didn't Morse say Tinker is inapplicable to off-campus speech? Yeah, I don't pull that from Morse as being a significant ruling. And I don't think that it is, if that was a determination that they made, I don't think it's a particularly helpful determination for us moving forward. Uh, and in any event, the conduct that occurred in Morse wasn't off campus. It was it was at a school sponsored activity. But then I'm not going to re-argue the facts of that case. Uh, so I'm not sure that Morse really sheds much light on how the court should rule in BL. Because I think there's a number of ways we can distinguish Morse as either supporting the school's position or supporting the student's position based on what you want to focus on in the Morse case. So now I can see how both sides could argue all the facts in all four of these cases and portions of the rulings would support their respective positions. Okay, fair enough. Um, you know, as you mentioned, some of the tinker was, was it late 60s, early 70s? It was decided in 1969. The conduct actually took place in 1965. Okay, well, anyway, the most recent of these is 2006. Mm -hmm. 
as recent as 2006 may seem in the grand scheme of things, technologically, it's, you know, the Stone Age as compared to where we are in 2021 and compared to the technology that BL was using Snapchat. And so, you know, can these precedents be applied to this 21st century circumstance or are they no longer applicable in light of this new technology? You know, do we really, or do we need to rethink this from the uh, ground up in terms of how these, uh, what kind of discipline schools should be able to have given the fluidity of technology and the, and the boundaries that they have blurred between on and off, online to offline? Well, Matt, as, as, a, as a counselor to school authorities, I always try and make sense of complicated Supreme Court decisions and complicated constitutional issues. And the way I make sense of this question about how we deal with off-campus speech is I say we go back to Tinker, because I think Tinker is still the most instructive of all four of those cases. And even though Tinker dealt with a pre-digital era, the underlying concerns and the basis for the court's holding is timeless. And focusing first on material and substantial disruption in school, that's basically a nexus argument. And if we look at all of the issues involving student speech, and I'm asked, as a school attorney, can we discipline for this or not? One of the first questions I ask is, what's the connection to school? And then the next question I ask is, why? Why do you want to discipline? And if the answer I get is because this speech is really hurtful and harmful toward other students that we are responsible for protecting, then I say, I think that that obligation to protect their health and safety trumps any sort of First Amendment claim that the student making the expression can claim because you have an obligation to protect the health and safety of others. And the way I justify that is I go back to the language and tinker. And even though it wasn't part of the holding, the language I think is strong enough that it can stand on its own. And that is you can restrict speech to, uh, that interferes with the rights of others. And we all know now the research has shown that cyber speech is particularly hurtful to students, much more so than face that is speech that is expressed directly face to face because of its ubiquity and the fact that it's anonymous and the student can't get away from it. And there is a lot of data showing how children have engaged in self-harm and suicide because of this speech. And so I tell school districts that there are a couple of grounds that you can justify disciplining for that speech. One is the tried and true tinker. Does it cause material and substantial disruption in school? And to the extent that other kids know about it and other kids are talking about it and, it, and it's all, all, you know, it's creating a hubbub in school, that I think pulls in tinker and gives you the basis to discipline. But even if that doesn't apply and if it's hurtful to a particular student, to the extent that that student is contemplating taking their life, then I think that other consideration in Tinker applies. And that is, you can restrict speech that collides and interferes with the rights of others to be left alone. And 
I will happily defend that case against a First Amendment claim, notwithstanding all of the interpretation of the dicta in these four cases. And that is how I explain the balancing of students' rights to expression against a school's obligation to maintain health and safety of students in school. And this is how I can justify the Third Circuit's ruling in BL, not on, under the analysis that they apply, but under that, just looking at what was the target of the speech and did it cause material and substantial disruption. And I don't think there's enough of a nexus that would override that student's right of free expression. And so I, I could defend the court's decision based solely on Tinker. Okay. Interesting. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that one of the judges on the Third Circuit held, uh, wrote a concurrence um, stating basically that, that, you know, this is, I uh, agree with the holding, but I think that this just doesn't create enough of a disturbance in order to trigger uh, the discipline uh, and, yeah. and, to, and to have Tinker justify uh, that discipline because there's just not enough of a disruption. So you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago the the concept of a, of a, a, some kind of nexus to the school with mm-hmm. relation to the speech, uh, whether online or offline, but made off campus. And that's something that's come up in a number of circuits. And so is it true that most courts have allowed public schools to discipline students for social media posts so long as those posts have some nexus to school activities? And is it, and then of course, threaten to disrupt them in some kind of way? To answer that question, we'd have to look at what cases actually went to court. And there are a series of cases that are from this very uh, circuit, the third circuit. Uh, And then there is a companion case, very similar facts from the fourth circuit. The third circuit cases both involved students who created MySpace web pages uh, attacking school administrators. In one case, it was the principal. In the other case, it was the assistant principal. But both of these web pages were created off-site. I think one of them was in their grandmother's house and using the grandmother's computer and someone else was... some. But there was no question they were not using school resources and they weren't at school when they created these web pages. And the web pages were directed against these uh, these administrators, and they're filled with bile, untrue, uh, sophomoric, mean-spirited, just, uh, yeah. And the schools both uh, suspended the students, and the cases have a long procedural history, uh, which I won't go into, but ultimately, the court upheld the students' First Amendment rights of free speech against the discipline that the schools had imposed and ruled in favor of the students in both instances. So hold those cases right there. And that's the third circuit, same circuit as BL. And then occurring right around the same time, we had another case from the fourth circuit in uh, the Kowalski case involving a student who created a MySpace. I don't know what it was with MySpace back then. In fact, I read somewhere it's because parents weren't on MySpace. Parents had discovered Facebook. And so the kids had MySpace all to themselves. So they continued to use MySpace. Parents had migrated to Facebook. So but that's neither here nor there. But in the Kowalski case, 
the girl had created this mean-spirited web page directed against another student at the school, not an administrator, but another student, and it really, really hurtful uh, stuff. And the and the target of the web page complained to the administration, and the administration disciplined the student who had created the web page. She challenged the discipline as violating her First Amendment rights. Very similar facts created off campus, in my view, a, a very important distinguishing fact. The target of this web page was another student. The target in the other two cases were school administrators. And last time I checked, I don't think school administrators are, are committing suicide over what students write about them on posts, as hateful as it is. It's not, it is not something that it puts the health and safety of that administrator at risk. Another student, that's a whole different issue. And that is how I distinguish those cases. In the Fourth Circuit case, the Kowalski case, the court upheld the discipline against the student's claim of First Amendment protection. And, and that's how I distinguish those cases. And that's why I, I'm, I'm struggling with this, um, what seems to me somewhat arbitrary distinction between on-campus and off-campus as being determinative in whether or not speech is protected. I believe, and certainly for purposes of advising school officials, a much more helpful way to look at it is who's the target of the speech and does it uh, implicate the health and safety of students? And then you can also pull out the tried and true analysis under Tinker, does it, cause, does it cause or is it likely to cause a material and substantial disruption at school? And that gives you all you need to know whether or not you can discipline the student in the face of a First Amendment claim, whether you will win the court case when the student challenges. School districts go ahead and discipline all the time, and most of these cases don't go to court. So as a, as a school, as an attorney representing school districts, I advise my, my administrators on practical matters. And I said, I will much rather defend you on a First Amendment claim if you're protecting the health and safety of other students. So as a practical matter, that's how I teach this to administrators. Now the court will come up with much more nuanced analyses, but for, for practical interpretation, for a school wanting to know what they can do, that's, in my view, the most helpful way to analyze these cases. And I don't think it has a lot to do with whether the student is holding their cell phone, doing their social media stuff on the campus or somewhere else. It's more, what are they saying? What is the target of it? And does it cause substantial material disruption? And does it potentially impact the health and safety of other students who are under the care of the school district? Those kinds of fact-specific inquiries, I think, are, are, are always so critical. Why do you think the Supreme Court granted cert in this case? You know, particularly given that uh, education is a state's rights matter uh, and you know, I would imagine that this is something that the courts are generally a little bit more leery of wading into, uh, and also because they are so fact-specific. And also, I think there's something to be said for the idea that, you know, school administrators need to be able to respond in the moment and be able to respond quickly. And so, you know, why do you think that the Supreme Court decided to weigh in now? And I'm sure BLs is, as much as my research uncovered some other cases, uh, I am sure that 
they were frankly the exceptions and far from the norm or the farther from what is the norm if this kind of thing probably happens all the time and like you said they're litigated how often i mean you know this this thing must arise all the time most people don't have the resources to bring a first amendment claim they accept their discipline and 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 that's that uh here's why i think they took it this time back in 2011 2012 the three cases I discussed earlier were they all sought petition. They all sought uh, they all filed cert petitions which were denied. And at the time, I remember the brief that was submitted by the National School Boards Association was, "We'd like you to take this case because we need some direction on this issue." But that wasn't enough to convince the Supremes to take it then. However, ten years later, they have decided the time is right, and I believe that. The questions that are raised in BL are very similar to the questions that were raised 10 years ago. But at that time, cyberspeech was in its infancy. Now we are dealing with it, and that really is the more typical type of speech as opposed to the old, the speech that was in-person speech that was contemplated in Tinker in a pre-digital world. That makes sense. And, I, you know, the peripher- as I mentioned, the, you know, the technology has just only exploded and the pro- proliferation of social media has only made these cases greater. Part of me also even wonders if with the addition of uh, Justice Barrett, you know, and she has school aged children, maybe it's possible that, you know, she took a look at the petition and thought, you know, maybe you, you know, uh, I don't know, does Justice Thomas have children? If he does, you know, they're probably fully grown and, and well out of uh, grade school. Whereas- Kavanaugh is young and he probably has children. Gorsuch is young. He probably has children. And they are probably much more social media savvy than the court as it was made up 10 years ago when this issue came before the court. So they probably have real life personal experiences if they have children in school or I, I whether or not we have kids in school, school is part and parcel of our lives. This is not an arcane, uh, obscure issue that we don't have personal experience with. So I'm not surprised they took it. I also think that it was served up to them very well by the Third Circuit. The way the decision was written, it was almost like, here you go, Supremes. We have formed your discussion and your argument and we have given you we've done your work for you and i it was created as a vehicle to go to the supreme court uh, one of the things that i read in that in bl which is really really in, important and that is you need to have the right facts bad facts make bad law uh, I, that's not exactly what they were saying and i don't know that if that factors into why they took this case but in my view, it was all wrapped up in a bowl because there was all of the analysis of the different circuits and the questions posed and the uncertainty, and it was it was handled very, very well. So the Supremes can look at it and say, aha, here is our question. That's interesting. And while we're on that subject of the justices, based on the current makeup of the court, how do you think they're going to decide and why? Well, putting aside the makeup of the court, because I I don't know if when all is said and done, that really makes a difference. If the court is looking strictly at this case from a legal perspective, as opposed to bringing in their own personal perspectives, what I anticipate will occur 
and that is courts don't like to issues decision brought, issue decisions broader than the issues that are in front of them. I think they can decide this case very narrowly, upholding the Third Circuit. Earlier, I said that there are two what I consider important parts of the Tinker decision, and one of those is this issue of interfering with the rights of others. Well, in the BL case, they were very clear to say, we're not dealing with instances where the speech is threatening or harassing. So that is not even in front of the Supremes. So if they're not gonna deal with that issue, then they can simply look at this and apply a Tinker analysis. And that is, was there a nexus? Tinker talks about it as material and substantial disruption in school. Nexus is a little bit broader way of looking at it. And uh, I think that there's enough there factually to support upholding the Third Circuit's decision that the school didn't have the authority to discipline, that the, that the students' First Amendment rights trump the school's authority to discipline. But will that holding give the school districts the guidance that they sought 10 years ago? I don't know. I, 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 have, I don't... I'm grappling with this because I don't think the on-campus, off-campus question is the way it should be phrased. Because as given the example that I'm... I, I gave you, you could have one student who is nowhere near school on his phone, creating a social media site. And you could have another student who's also uh, adding to the site who is sitting in school. Are you going to discipline one and not the other because one person is off campus and the other one's on campus? I just don't think off campus, on campus even applies. What I think is much more important is the uh, impact on the school, and in particular, the tinker analysis, material and substantial disruption, because they're not going to talk about harassment and threats, which I believe is the other part of the tinker analysis. I guess what I'm wondering is if they're going to make such, if they were to make such a narrow holding, why take the case in the first place? If you're not going to issue a rule that's going to offer guidance to the circuit split, to the school administrators to have a a clear understanding and predictability of when they can and cannot mete out discipline. If you're only going to simply say, Tinker wasn't triggered the end, I don't, you know, I I fail to see how we're not back here in two years. Well, and, and I think that that's a, Matt, that's a really good question. I don't know why they took the case and I, I am viewing this through my own lens. And in some regards, I view this case the way I do another Supreme Court case involving a student search that is from, uh, I want to say, 2000, uh, 2009, and it involved strip search at school. Why did the Supreme Court take it? I have no idea. They didn't articulate any new distinction in it. I don't know why they took this particular case. I will be very interested to see how they rule. I think what I am saying is so much colored by the advice that I would give school districts. And that's why I'd be very interested to hear what uh, my fellow, my colleagues who are also going to be speaking on this podcast have to say, because they will approach this from a much more scholarly constitutional direction than I am. And I believe that they can, give you a much better answer to that question than I can. I, 
I think what I'm saying is more aspirational as a practicing attorney, as a professor educating school administrators, what I would like the court to do with this case as opposed to what in fact they will do with the case. It's anybody's guess. Fair enough. Well, we appreciate having your expertise and your practical guidance. Professor Herzman, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you, Matt. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guest. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communication at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jossend, and Lenny Reiner. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.